Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. As the nation observes Juneteenth, commemorating the day in 1865 when enslaved people in Texas received the good news of freedom more than two months after the end of the Civil War, we are still grappling with serious issues around civil rights, economic and political inequality, and unfairness in the criminal justice system. Now, a year after widespread protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by a police officer once again brought these issues to the top of the national conversation, I'm joined by Makeda Henry Nicky, a fellow in governance studies at Brookings and an expert on policies that advance inclusive economic opportunities for disadvantaged families and low-income communities. In our discussion, she talks about where we've made progress on these issues, but also how much remains to be done. Also on this episode, in a new Sustainable Development Spotlight, two scholars from Global Economy and Development at Brookings share their thoughts on the needed reawakening of international cooperation to tackle development and sustainability challenges around the world, especially in emerging markets so badly hurt by the coronavirus pandemic. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. First up, here's my interview with Makeda Henry Nicky. Makeda, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Oh, wow. Thanks, Fred. It's been a while since I've been here. Happy to join again. Yeah, I think it was about four years ago when you came on when you were relatively new to Brookings to record what we call the coffee break. Uh, and actually, I'm going to quote from that here in a few minutes. But first, can you just uh, reintroduce yourself to listeners? Sure. I am Makeda Henry Nicky, a fellow in governance studies, and um, I, I'm sitting in the Center uh, Race Prosperity Inclusion Initiative, where we focus on uh, issues of uh, racial equality, income inequality, and just generally how to advance policies that close uh, economic opportunity gaps for uh, communities of color. So, um, you know, definitely congruent with that work that you're doing. We're just over a year uh, after protests for racial justice erupted in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis um, and others. And, and now also the country is starting to recover somewhat from the COVID-19 pandemic. States and businesses are reopening. Um, so against that backdrop, when you look at America today and focused on issues of racial inequity and justice, on income inequality especially, what do you see that deserves critical attention? Yeah, yeah. The last year and a half was was raw. I mean, there's no other way to sort of put it, right? 2020, I think for me, was a year of disruption. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, it was a year of wokeness, and and then we saw these transformative movements. Uh, you know, you've got these uh, uh, violent policing uh, acts from Breonna Taylor's execution to George Floyd's murders. You mentioned colliding in a very public way with a uh, pandemic that has been especially brutal to communities of color, and I think that's finally forcing this public reckoning on issues of racial injustice, inequality, and income inequality. Um, but it feels like, Fred, that with each new cycle, you know, it feels like we're adding new, more urgent items to the policy agenda. So there's a lot to focus on. But I think there are a few that really deserve our, our undivided attention here. I'll go ahead and sort of say foremost, I think, is the current assault on voting rights that's unfortunately spreading like wildfire through these you know, mostly southern states. Uh, between New Year's Day this year and Memorial Day alone, 14 states have enacted 22 new laws restricting voting rights. Um, and President Biden said it aptly, right, this war, GOP-led war against voting rights is playing out across these states like a bold-faced return to, you know, Jim Crow. So we really need to, I think, prioritize uh, thinking about how 
how to protect voting rights for communities of color, um, you know, as we move further into the legislative agenda where we're getting nervous about who's going to control the balance of power come with the midterm elections. Um, and so relatedly, I think, you know, I can't stress enough, I need the Democrat-controlled Congress to figure out how to pass President Biden's ambitious $6 trillion budget, which I think has key programmatic investments that are critical to addressing like, the racial wealth gap and reinvesting in minority and in Indigenous communities. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we have uh, really important investments, like $3 billion to reduce and end race-based disparities in maternal mortality, $15 billion in this new highways to neighborhoods program. Neighborhoods like my own would would benefit tremendously from those kinds of investments where we've been, you know, since the highway reconstruction, our neighborhoods are cleaved in half, you know, on one side, there's opportunity that's been booming for decades and on the other, um, just disinvestment and decay. And, uh, you know, to even see $900 million flowing to tribes to expand their efforts to um, boost affordable housing, all of those uh, initiatives are going to be sort of really critical to uh, really making this an, an, an inclusive account, uh, recovery, excuse me, and expanding uh, racial um, uh, equity. Um, and again, I just wanted to say, I'm not suggesting that these are the only issues we should focus on, right? You've got right. the Justice and Policing Act um, uh, that's certainly important to um, addressing decades of mass incarceration for black men, but without protecting the rights of people of color in this country, you know, to elect their leaders, to represent their interests, and also to allocate substantial federal investments to fund um, racial and inequality mandates. I think we're not going to get, you know, too far beyond just bare conversation. So it's important for me to sort of focus on those two buckets. Well, that leads to my, my follow-up question, and, and I think you may have just answered it answered it. You've mentioned um, the voting rights legislation in Congress. You mentioned the George Floyd justice and policing legislation that's in Congress. You mentioned uh, President Biden's uh, uh, budget and, and the programs that it proposes. Um, those are all things that would have to be enacted into law. Uh, but short of that, are, are there policy areas, again, given the context that we've talked about over the last year, are there policy areas in which you think we are making progress for whatever definition of progress you might have? Yes, whatever definition of progress. And I'm not a, a glass half empty kind of person. So I'll say, yeah, we've made progress. Um, I'd like to call out uh, the Biden administration's muscular investments in America's working class families. Right? So some pundits already drawing comparisons between Biden and his policy priorities and President Roosevelt and his efforts to create what we have come to own and know as the social safety net. Um, in a few weeks, for example, 36 million struggling families will receive these, start receiving these monthly uh, child tax credit payments, and that's 250 for kids at between the age of six and 17, and 300 for kids under six uh, for you know, single parents who earn less than $75,000, and then married couples making just under 150,000 a year. Um, for right now, this uh, credit is refundable, but. It represents, I think, an important investment in low and middle income uh, uh, families, and it'll provide enormous relief to families who are teetering on the edge of like a financial cliff. Many of these families, too many of them experienced, uh, you know, a, a sharp rise in their food insecurity issues. Um, and in less than two weeks, and I know we're talking about this enough, uh, June 30th, the federal eviction moratoriums, they come to an end. That's going to throw a lot of these families into homelessness. So, um, again, 
Love that that's um, a happening. That's the half glass full. Now here's the half glass empty perspective. The child tax credit, it's a start, but it can't be the end, right? So to cement the boost to these families, we need to expand the credit and make it permanent. Um, according to the Center on uh, Budget and po- Policy Priorities, if we make this permanent, we could at least lift 4.1 million children out of poverty. That's 40% reduction in child poverty. Amazing. Um, and of course, Black and Hispanic children disproportionately benefit, but this will also sort of change and affect about 8.8 million white kids who have been previously underserved by, you know, sort of this pre-pandemic formulation of the credit. So I think it's important to, again, figure out how to commend uh, the legislators for the progress that we've made, but we really need to make these kinds of policies permanent. I'd like to move on to some of the research that you've done recently. And in a recent paper, and I'll link to this in the show notes on our website, you wrote about economic dynamism in America's minority communities. Can you tell listeners a little bit about that research? So I wanted to make a contribution here, Fred, on uh, the discussion, how do we rebuild or actually build an inclusive economy? Um, This year, we commemorated last month, right, 100 years of the Tulsa massacre. And for us in the Black community, that was not our only our Wall Street. It could have been a catalyst to billions of dollars of inheritance and wealth building. Um, And in a few days, we'll here again be commemorating Juneteenth and the celebration of our freedom from slavery. At the core of this journey, whether it's freedom and and to perseverance, has been our ability to create wealth through our entrepreneurial spirit. And I think we needed a reminder about the power of entrepreneurship to create wealth and employment for communities of color. So I wanted to sort of add this to the discussion and create an empirical case that communities of color, like mine, are capable of creating viable, high quality business ventures that can add to the employment base and communities that really have fallen behind in this pandemic. But to do so, you know, we need uh, to see substantial targeted investments, right, to bolster uh, minority entrepreneurs and um, and just sort of their capacity to create jobs in their local communities. I just don't think we have focused enough on this aspect of wealth creation and job creation and wanted to just add a data point to the discussion. Is it the case, uh, and maybe my reading of this is off, but is it the case perhaps that there is untapped potential in communities of color in terms of wealth and entrepreneurship, but for various reasons, systemic racism, uh, for example, that wealth isn't being nurtured, isn't being tapped, isn't being, um, you know, encouraged? Well, plainly said, I just think it is not being invested in. (laughs) When we talk about entrepreneurship, especially in the academic literature, there's always this distinction made between um, quality and uh, uh, color almost. And we invariably are associated with low quality entrepreneurship and not producing enough jobs. And it's high time that we change that perspective and think about, you know, ways that Employment creation is possible through entrepreneurship, but to get that done, we need to invest. You've also done a lot of research uh, and you have a lot of expertise in issues around financial inclusion, financial services and banking. Um, Can you talk about how policy approaches in those areas can address racial inequities? Uh, Sure. Um, I think I'd love to sort of start off with this um, (laughs) premise that we're in the midst of this digital transformation, right? And that's really rapidly reshaping the way we access financial services, of course, and products, but also general consumer markets. And that has, I think, enormous implications for the economic mobility of people of color, particularly as it relates to accessing opportunities. Um, So, 
in my view, I think the case for expanding financial inclusion for minority groups is really more urgent now than it has been even a decade ago. Um, we are seeing, I observe in my own work, an accelerated proliferation of machine learning and AI models through every domain of the financial uh, services marketplace. Um, and it, I think it's important for the audience to understand what do we do with these models, right? We, regardless of how they're applied, we use them to price risk. Um, and we're, we're accustomed to hearing about them in the context of credit. Uh, you know, people in the research community, myself included, you know, we've long been discussing and adding a ton of evidence to the disparities in how people and institutions, excuse me, approve and price credit. But I don't think we're paying enough attention to the blurred lines in the other parts of the financial lives that will ultimately have knock-on effects to what, you know, we know is this entrenched um, financial disparities and black and white disparities in wealth and income. One example of this sort of lines being blurred is uh, 2015, let's go back a few years, um, when ProPublica brought out a report that the Princeton Review, a, a testing company, was using dynamic pricing models to individualize uh, computer pricing. And that's fair. That's fine. There's nothing unethical about that. But what it turned out is that the company was charging uh, c consumers in certain zip codes much higher prices, I mean, into the tunes of hundreds of dollars than others. Ultimately, this ended up, you know, in, 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 in Asians being systematically charged higher rates than any other group. So last year, researchers from the George Washington University, they doubled down. I mean, they looked at um, 100 million uh, ride hails in Chicago and found that uh, consumers in minority, high poverty neighborhoods and those of younger residents were charged higher prices. So if you sort of put these discriminatory patterns together, for me, those are examples of how financial resources leak out of minority households and out of minority consumer pockets. Um, and then, you know, combined with the legacy disparities already embedded in our system, ultimately we're continuing to, to perpetuate and, and, and double down on the wealth divide. So what we should be asking is how do we combat this? And I think it's important for us to have a robust, I can't stress enough, a robust regulatory framework to protect consumers. But I, you know, part of this conversation, Fred, has to start pivoting towards how do we enhance these regulations for new institutional players that challenge these existing rules, but behave in ways that perpetuate um, systemic discrimination. And I hate to beat up on Facebook, but unfortunately, they do come to mind, you know. Um, and so, again, I think a lot of this goes back to it, combating racial inequalities really, ha, you know, really centers on not just financial inclusion, but the rules and the regulations to protect consumers, because the playing field is just increasingly complex and becoming more unfair. Well, I'll just say again uh, for listeners that they can find your research on financial inclusion and a lot of other issues on our website, brookings.edu. Um, I want to go back to uh, something I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, when we started this conversation, and that's when you introduced yourself the first time on the Brookings Cafeteria in our coffee break. Um, you said, and I'll quote, I think very few people will argue with me when I say in this country, when we talk about poverty, certain images and words predominate that discussion, lazy, unambitious, unwilling to work, and Black. Can you revisit that quote? Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think in the last <laughs> 18 months, the, you know, so many uh, uh, conservatives have uh, put down payments and on, on that, that quote and make that, unfortunately, made that statement true. You know, we're looking at all of the discussions surrounding how do we bolster this economy? How do we make an inclusive economic recovery? And all of this centers on getting workers back to work. 
Unfortunately, what you're seeing is these kinds of tropes and ideas as to who's receiving unemployment compensation. Perhaps it's keeping them on the couch. Perhaps it's that, the, you know, they're just too lazy to go out and work. And so now you're seeing state by state walk back these critical supports uh, in the midst of the, when the pandemic hasn't even, you know, really left us yet. Uh, and I think a lot of this is really sort of anchored around who we tend to see the images that are conjured up when we talk about these sort of social net programs and who we're giving assistance to through the uh, federal uh, uh, safety net, as opposed to who's working. And again, you know, the disparities on unemployment, who's returning to work because of all of these other barriers, those barriers are being ignored. And, you know, you're just looking at the outcomes. And I think that lends further credence to these uh, under-informed and misinformed and, also, and actually racist arguments about who should benefit, who should go back to work. Uh, I want to ask you another question that's kind of a um, higher level view. It kind of gets out of the specific policy areas. It's in the conversation right now in this country uh, in a really, really, um, really big way. And we hear, especially from people on the right, that policy should be, quote, race blind, uh, unquote. Um, people say that we should not be looking at people and seeing color. Uh, and they often quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s exhortation to judge by the content of our character and not the color of our skin. We're hearing this a lot in the context of uh, this uh, discussion, if you will, about critical race theory. Um, how do you respond to that perspective? Well, whenever I hear the argument, it makes me chuckle a little bit. Listen, nothing in America has ever been race blind. From slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow and throughout the civil rights era, we've spent centuries, Fred, investing in our public dollars and building the institutions of white wealth. So even as we make comparisons, like I mentioned earlier, between Biden and FDR and draw those parallels, let's not forget, you know, that he championed these white conscious policies that secured the wealth and privilege that many misguided conservatives <laughs> believe is their birthright. <laughs> so it's impossible, in my view, to make the case for racial equity or inclusion uh, without lifting up race conscious policies um, and targeting you know, the structural racist system we built meticulously and signed and sealed and delivered it with racist laws. So there's no conversation about equity and, 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 and inclusion that can avoid race. Um, we need to close these wealth gaps, these racialized wealth gaps. We need to talk about rec uh, reparations. I just put the question back to them. Like, how do you create an equitable and inclusive economy without talking about race? You tell me. Right. Uh, and I've done uh, many interviews on this show um, that uh, focus on a lot of these topics. I'm thinking with uh, Rashawn Ray and Andre Perry on their reparations paper, Andre Perry on his book about um, black wealth and neighborhoods and so on. As we wrap up, I do want to call out the Race, Prosperity, and Inclusion Initiative here at Brookings, which you helped establish, and also the Brookings Institution's Priority Research Area on Race, Justice, and Equity. Where do you see this area of research going, and where do you think it needs to go? So I'm excited for the upcoming year. We have uh, some fantastic scholars that are joining the RPI team. And uh, with their help, we're going to uh, expand the conversation into places of public health. Um, definitely double down and triple down on a criminal justice conversation. Um, how do we advance uh, policies that address the um, effects of the mass incarceration of Black men? 
how do we revise and update and change the public psyche about who our Black young men are and how they are contributors, not detractors for public safety and, and the strength of communities. Um, and also just really digging down into um, a lot of these uh, identities around our um, changing political landscape. Um, a lot of this conversation has been centered on Black and white. Some groups, unfortunately, have been continued to be treated as monoliths. And we've got some new scholars who are going to really unpack those new and emerging attitudes and help us to figure out what does this mean for our ability to govern on uh, race issues as we you know, continue on with this administration and hopefully uh, into the next decade or two. Well, new scholars and new research sounds like more opportunities for me on the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. So I'll definitely be in touch with you and them on that. Um, Makeda, I want to thank you for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. Wonderful. Thanks. It's been a pleasure, Fred. Uh, You can find more research uh, from Makeda Henry-Nicky and also the Race, Prosperity and Inclusion Initiative at Brookings on our website, brookings.edu. And now here's Homi Karas and Amar Bhattacharya, Senior Fellows in Global Economy and Development on Global Post-COVID-19 Challenges. Hello, I'm Homi Karas here with Amar Bhattacharya. We're Senior Fellows in the Center for Sustainable Development in the Global Economy and Development uh, Research Program at uh, Brookings, bringing you a Sustainable Development Spotlight. Omar, it wasn't very long ago when both of us were writing a lot about how there was almost nothing uh, going on in the world of international cooperation for uh, developing countries. We had seen the U.S. essentially withdrawing from the WTO, from the Paris Climate Agreement, the International Tax Agreement had broken down, there were arrears to uh, international financial institutions. And in just a few months, it seems as if many of the things that we've been talking and writing about have reversed, and there's been a a huge spate of activity. And now both of us have also had the first meeting of a uh, World Bank IMF high-level advisory group on uh, sustainable development and what the international financial institutions can do to move forward. So it seems that a lot is happening. You, you, You share that? Are you optimistic now about how things are going? Well, this uh, reawakening of multilateralism and international cooperation is timely. Indeed, it is actually urgent. And as you know, the pandemic has had severe impacts, especially on emerging markets and developing countries. But, you know, to be candid, the glass is still half full or half empty. There is a lot still to be done. I certainly share that view and my own work on debt and the uh, ability of developing countries to actually attract the kind of financing that we're talking about to be able to invest in both the health issues, education and sustainable infrastructure is really a, uh, a tall order. And ultimately, in all of these things, the devil is in the details and all we're seeing is the headline numbers. And when you get into the details, I think our research suggests that it's going to be a a long and rather difficult role. But you've been doing a lot of work and thinking about the the size of the investments that are uh, required. Yes, indeed. In the, the Stern report that we prepared for G7 leaders at the request of Prime Minister Johnson, we make the point that the G7 and the world at large 
need a significant boost in investment. And we, are, we argue that the G7 alone need to increase their investment by about a trillion dollars a year. But the, the challenge is that whereas the G7 has put already $12 trillion on the table, emerging markets and developing countries, as you have pointed out, are much more constrained. Yes, and I think that it's really important to understand that when we we sometimes talk about emerging markets and developing economies as if they were a, a single a homogeneous block, but actually their characteristics are now very, very different, both in terms of what they need and in terms of their financing capabilities. And it literally ranges from places like China on the one hand, which is obviously sui generis, to uh, small island economies, some of which have seen a uh, fall of 20, even 25% of their GDP as a result of the fall in tourism uh, revenues during the pandemic. So absolutely massive external uh, shocks. So when we look at Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, investment uh, rates are really extremely low and they really do need to be boosted. But it's only governments that can really give that impetus to uh, new investments. And many of these governments are have not been particularly inclined to invest or to demonstrate that they're capable of investing efficiently. Precisely. So we need, in some sense, to work on two sides. We need to improve the capabilities to be able to invest, to translate significant needs and opportunities into real demand. And on the other side, we need to harness and mobilize literally the 150 trillion of long-term savings that could be used for this purpose. So there is much to do. And I think this is the year where the world can come together. It has to come together through the G7, but also the upcoming G20 meetings, the UN meetings, and culminating in the G20 summit and COP26 at the end of the year. A team of amazing colleagues helps make the Brookings Cafeteria possible. My thanks to audio engineer Gaston Reveredo, to Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, to my communications colleagues Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and finally to Camila Ramirez and Andrea Risotto for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the current and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>